Hello, my name is Adarsh Parthasarthi, <coughs> and uh, as usual, my voice is gone. So uh, you are listening to KSDT's The Isle. KSDT is, of course, UC San Diego's fiercely independent radio station. Um, as is unfortunately true sometimes, uh, as a very, very busy student, I have nothing prepared for this show today. Uh, I was supposed to write the script Monday, and then I did something else instead. So, yeah, I don't have anything. But, uh, you know what? We're just going to talk about some random stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously on the show we've been talking about justice a lot, uh, whether that involves the Supreme Court or the Supreme Court again or the Supreme Court for the third show. But we never actually have talked about um, anything beyond the, well, the, the court system which is kind of bad. Uh, the justice system we have here, uh, this is my belief, I'll explain it first, and we can kind of talk about it and have a very one-sided discussion about it, but my kind of conception of a justice system is different than what we have in the United States. Because I think what we have is more of a punishment system. It's punitive. It's fundamentally punitive. Uh, when you have someone who commits a crime, what do you do? You get them, you know, you arrest them under the law and you take them to court and then they have to prove their innocence or the prosecutor has to prove their guilt and will, for the sake of argument, say that they're guilty and say that they, you know, murdered a, a person or they kicked a dog or they, you know, they used drugs or something like that and, and then they got caught. Well, I feel personally that our goal should be as a justice system to try and rehabilitate them. Why would you not want to do that? You've captured them. You've taken their freedom, I suppose rightfully so, since they've like committed a crime against society. But after that, if you want to still call what we have a justice system, then I feel as though the goal should be rehabilitation and not to punish people. Um, so I guess the question before us today is, is what we have in this system of courts and prosecutors and defenders and juries and judges, is what we have a justice system or is it just a system for people to punish those who have diverged from the laws of society? So let's kind of break down this question. Uh, there are two parts to this. There are two parts. The first part is whether or not we are justified in imposing laws onto others. Um, and in this case, you know, when we're looking at this from a philosophical standpoint, we're kind of looking at something called moral relativism, right? Is our morality relative? Is it relative to other people's or is there some kind of objective truth? Is there an objective morality? Um, you know, is, is is there some universal rule that says thou shalt not murder? Not from the Bible, but is there some other universal rule? Is there some universal truth that says, you know, killing people is wrong? Is there some universal truth that says stealing is wrong? Or that, uh, well, basically, or maybe more simply put, going against the laws established by a majority subset of society. Is there something that says that that is fundamentally um, wrong? And... I don't know. You can say yes, you can say no, but to kind of put into perspective what moral relativism is at its purest form, 
is that you can't say anyone else is wrong. You can have your own moral system. I can have a moral system and say that killing people is wrong. And some guy in some island tribe who was taught to hunt kids and then the strongest kids survive and become the leader of the tribe or something. I can't say, oh, what you're doing is wrong. You're killing kids because that's my moral system. And as a true moral relativist, I'm afraid I can't do that. But if I come from another perspective, you know, if I say, yes, there is a universal truth, there is some kind of, I suppose, a like a conscience, uh, Immanuel Kant basically says, you know, oh, the world isn't absolutes. There's some universal right. There's some universal wrong. Um, you know, if I'm from that perspective, then I can say, yeah, murdering's wrong. And, you know, go screw yourself. I'm going to go punish you because you decided to go against the laws of society. So is that the right way? I, I suppose the society that we have today, uh, that's more what we subscribe to because it makes it easy. Right. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. Uh, in fact, that's probably correct, you know, to have a good set of rules that people tend to follow. And if you decide to be part of the society, if you're a citizen of the United States, a resident of the United States, you follow the laws in the United States. Uh, and that goes for any other country, no matter what you personally feel about those laws, you are in someone else's place. Someone else is providing for your protection. If you get beaten on the streets of like Qatar, the Qatari royal guard or police or whatever they are they're probably going to help you and go find the person who beat you right so you're under their protection and in return you have to follow their laws that's the idea of you know the social contract right and this kind of social contract concept has been around for a long time uh and it's kind of the idea that we give up some freedoms to enter into into society and the, the term, the social contract, actually comes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a, a French Enlightenment philosopher. And, and his theory of the social contract, uh, well, his book, The Social Contract, um, was basically his, uh, I don't know, I think it's his most famous work, probably. Uh, in fact, that's a school of thought, is the social contract. And he says that the authority of the state over the individual is legitimate. You know, we enter into a society, we follow the rules of that society, and that's kind of what we're beholden to. So if we take that, uh, obviously it's an Enlightenment idea by a very famous, lauded Enlightenment philosopher, um, one that we clearly follow, we'll take that as a given. We'll take that as kind of a, a postulate that this is the correct way to do things, right? Um, but then let's take it, there are several questions still to whether or not we have a punitive justice system or whether the justice system is right or whether it's really a justice system. And one of those questions is, what do we want out of it? I mean, what do we define justice as? Is justice hurting or depriving a person of what we as a society have given them because they have wronged a member of society? They have un absolutely a murderer has wronged society by killing someone. And by breaking the laws of society. But is it, is it justice, is the kind of justice we seek, is that to punish them? Is that to, you know, put them in prison for six years and, and or, well, if it's murder, it's probably like 10 years or 20 years or something, depending on, I guess, the severity or something. But, uh, you know, do we put them in prison uh, and just like stick them in there and, you know, let them sit there and then take them out again after a while? Or do we do something else? Is our goal different? 
Uh, I know another goal is uh, restorative justice. Uh, and I actually have some experience with this, not because I've committed any crimes, but because I was part of a program uh, back home in, in Santa Clara. Um, I was part of a program called Santa Clara Peer Court. And basically it was the restorative justice arm of the of the juvenile justice system. So what happens is juveniles, they come in, you know, they uh, admit guilt to some petty misdemeanor or whatever. I took $30 worth of some guy like stole some vodka, some other person stole something from a, you know, department store or whatever. Uh, another person was having some kind of a fit and then punched a nurse. Or I mean, there was all kinds of crazy, crazy cases. And many of these kids, you know, they come from bad family situations, bad social situations, uh, more impoverished areas of the Bay Area, which is highly gentrified. If, you, if you're not familiar with it, the San Francisco Bay Area is very, very gentrified. Um, so, you know, you have these kids who are really, really kids. Many of them were 14, 15, and, and I did this in high school. I'm not much older than them. I wasn't, I wasn't much older than them, and I still am not. Um, so, you know, they come from all these kinds of negative situations, and they commit some crime. And here's the question. What do you do? They're kids. You know, do you want to put them in jail? Do you want to ruin their lives by sticking them in prison? Uh, do you want to have them go through the whole harrowing experience of a criminal trial, whether or not it's juvenile and the records are sealed? Do you, is that what we want as a society? Uh, the Santa Clara juvenile justice system said, no, that's not what we want. So if they admit guilt, if they hold themselves responsible for what they've done, what we will do is we will put them through what is called a restorative justice system. And basically, uh, I was an attorney for Santa Clara Peer Court uh, attorney. I use that in the loosest sense as in. Well, I'll describe it to you. Basically, the people in the trial, in the courtroom, they're uh, the jury and the uh, prosecutor and the uh, public defender are all students. We're all high school students and we're all volunteering our time, right? Uh, the judge is a real judge. The judge sat uh, always, it's a judge from the Santa Clara Superior Court. Um, they were, that's the county, the highest court in the county. And they were always sitting judges there. So they had actual legal power, I suppose. Um, we did not. Uh, and it was, the program was run by a parole officer and one of the, I think one of the prosecutors or something like that, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is that as student attorneys and student jurors, what we would do is we would kind of, we, well, first we would interview some witnesses, right? The store owner, in the case of the guy who stole some vodka, right? We'll interview that guy. Okay. What happened? How much did he steal? Did he hurt anyone? Did he break anything else? What were the circumstances surrounding the crime? Then, as a prosecutor, I mean, you know, we'll interview him. Then the defense will have their chance to cross-examine. And generally, there are not more than two or three witnesses, uh, including the defendant themselves. And we try to detect, you know, oh, does this person have some remorse? Does this person have this? Does this person have that? Um, and try to see, okay, are there mitigating circumstances? And of course, as as the prosecutor, we are given a mandate by by the parole officer, by other authorities in the government the local government about what restorative measures they feel are best. So if the guy stole something, maybe he needs to go to counseling. Maybe he needs to go to um, some kind of other therapy. Like maybe he needs to do community service uh, for, in the case of someone who does, who like drew graffiti on the school wall. I don't know. There are tons of different restorative measures that are in place that the county is prepared to offer. Um, and as the defense attorney, what the, def what the public defender would do is they would interview the, 
defendant and the defendant's family and try and come up with a, a good situation. And sometimes that situation was something like, oh, you need to separate yourself from your friends because they're all doing, I don't know, they're all committing crimes or something like that. And, and that's a bad influence. And clearly you admitted guilt. You want to get out of this situation. So that's a mandate, right? We're going to hold you to that. You're going to go to counseling, check in with the school, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, we're not arguing about guilt because the person said they're guilty. I, I did this, right? And the whole point is that they admit guilt. So we're just arguing about how best to help them. And eventually the jury goes into the jury deliberation room and um, then, you know, they're sequestered for like 20 minutes or whatever. And then they come out and they reach a verdict. Uh, they say, this kid needs to do 120 hours of community service and go to counseling. And he needs to scrub the graffiti off the school wall. No jail time, no record, nothing. But this person, you know what the recidivism, well, I, my tongue tied right now, but these people don't commit crimes again because they've been through this wonderful, nice process. And even if through that whole process, they're like, yeah, I got away with this. I can get away with it again. They have so much community service to do, so much counseling to go through. I don't think anyone wants to become a criminal. So something's driving them to become a criminal. Something's driving them to steal or, or do graffiti or break something, vandalize. And they want to not do that. I assume that they want good futures. And that's the kind of stuff that we see. That's the kind of stuff that we saw in pure court. So this is for kids. This is for kids who are from, you know, oftentimes bad backgrounds and, you know, they're not, they're, they're not very wealthy and, you know, they're, they come from tough situations. They come from really tough situations, especially in an area that's so heavily gentrified. Um, so uh, can we, is this justice? I think that's, at least in my view, that's a better form of justice because you ensure that the person does not go back and commit a crime. That's the whole point. Uh, instead of just, oh, kid, you're going to jail. Go go sit there for two years. Don't go to school. Don't Don't do anything. Come out and just subsist because the chances of a person of a, of a juvenile becoming successful after being in prison are very low. I don't have an exact number, but I'm quite sure that they are very low because your entire life is kind of uprooted by that. So can this be adopted for adults? Well, this is kind of a multi-layered question uh, because we have to consider that children are children and they're a product of their circumstances. Adults are adults, and adults have to take responsibility for their actions. Adults can't be blaming, you know, their family situation from their childhood. Uh, they tried that in the in the well, I think it was the Leopold Loeb trial uh, in Chicago a, a long time ago. There was a trial, uh, Leopold and Loeb, two University of Chicago students who basically kind of took a kid into their car and like butchered him. Um, and, well, it, it's quite bad. They, they just, like, killed him. Uh, they were trying to, they thought that their intellectual superiority demonstrated that, you know, they could have commit the perfect crime. So they, their attorney, Clarence Darrow, who is one of the most famous American lawyers, uh, he was a leading lawyer in the ACLU back in the early 90s. Uh, he's most well known for... Leopold and Loeb trial, Scopes Monkey trial about uh, teaching evolution in Tennessee. Uh, so, you know, it's it's 
this argument's been made before, uh, most famously in this trial. Just to tell you a little bit about it, uh, the Leopold Loeb trial was basically, um, the, or at least the argument that Clarence Darrow made, was basically that you can't hold, you can't hold these people accountable. Leopold and Loeb cannot be held accountable because they were abused in their childhood. They were uh, kind of this affluenza thing, right? If you guys haven't heard of affluenza, it's basically like this idea that, oh, affluent kids, you know, they don't understand the circumstances, they've been sheltered. And uh, that's a relatively new term. He didn't use affluenza. But uh, the kind of idea that, uh, excuse me, the kind of the idea that the people, adults, namely, can't be held responsible for their actions has been laughed at. Uh, and uh, Clarence Darrow kind of makes this argument that, that, I guess this consequentialist argument where he's like, you know, we have no control over what happens. Everything is determined by the, I guess it's a deterministic argument. Everything is determined by the past. Uh, he, they Leopold and Loeb, they could have done it. Couldn't have done anything to change that. They were driven to murder. And unless they're insane, that's not a really, uh, the court said, no, you know, they, he avoided the death penalty, which is, I think his goal. Uh, he wasn't even saying that they were innocent. Uh, he avoided the death penalty. They got sentenced to 99 years back to back terms or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, so we have to hold adults responsible and I, the legal system agrees, but can we, can we, uh, can we extend this kind of restorative measure to adults? So like we were just discussing one motivation for the restorative measure for kids is that they don't always have control over their family, but we just established that adults do have control over their, their family situation, this and that, you know, they can stop themselves from, from committing a murder, for example, or, or stealing something because they're fully capable individuals with developed brains. So that argument doesn't stand, but what about the goal of a justice system? Is, is it our goal? Is our goal punitive? Is our goal to, do the same thing to restore because that's a fundamentally better way of, of kind of maintaining a justice system. Is that fundamentally better for society? So let's break this down because many people think that it's not a good idea to kind of have a restorative justice system for adults just because that can be taken advantage of. But that's not quite what we see in real life. Uh, in real life, restorative justice systems, we see something very, very different. So right now I'm ad-libbing, so I have to pull this up. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Actually, you know what? We're going to go to station break while I ad-lib the hell out of this. And uh, we're going to see, let's see, we're going to listen to something. Some Some nonsense. All right, something written by, okay, that doesn't have anything. We're going to listen to Anchor Song and his song Testimony, which is apparently a remix of something. He started his career in Tokyo, and he's based in London now, so good for him. Let's listen to Anchor Song.
Hello. Uh, we are back with the aisle. Um, anyway, th- uh, since we're ad-libbing the show anyway, okay, I was looking for this article about uh, Sweden's justice system because they, um, excuse me, um, they want to make people get better, uh, prisoners get better, right? Um, and then on the sidebar of The Guardian, I see this article, Michael Cohen paid IT firm to tweet that he was sexy. The Wall Street Journal apparently reported today, uh, beautiful, that Cohen paid some guy to set up Women for Cohen, a Twitter account, to promote him as a pit bull and sex symbol. All right, this is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. This is beautiful. You can see their tweets. Go to at Women for Cohen on Twitter right now, and you can see this tweet that says, love seeing hashtag selfies of our number one, and then they tag Michael Cohen, and then they say, you look so handsome, hashtag MAGA. This is incredible. I've never seen such like inane nonsense in my life. This is a beautiful world we live in um, where, you know, people, this, this like crazy guy, he reposts a picture of himself. I don't know when he was like 40 or whatever. And then women for Cohen retweets it. And they're like, you look even more sexy, but the closest doppelganger for sure. I, I don't know what the hell this is going on anyway. That, yeah, that's, that's very off topic. You know, if you want someone to go to prison, it should be the person who, uh, who uh, said Michael Cohen is sexy. That person is truly mentally ill. But uh, that aside, that aside, let's talk about Sweden. Uh, We're talking about restorative justice. We're talking about whether the justice system is just in this very, very highly ad-libbed show of the aisle. Um, And I've found the article I was looking for before we had to take that station break. Uh, So there's this guy, um, the director general of, well, I don't know what, uh, Director General of Sweden's Prison and Probation Services was Nils Ulberg. No, Uberg. Nils Uberg. So he says, quote, prison is not for punishment in Sweden. We get people into better shape. That's a very good idea. That's a very nice statement. That's a very powerful statement so let's see according to the guardian interview with uh this guy whether it it holds so uberg is 54 apparently he's giving a um lecture in london um and he was giving a lecture in london when this when this interview happened and basically he's describing these stats so uh this article was written in uh, 2014 so it's a bit of old info but so everything is going to be 10 years 20 2004 to 2014 uh the Let's take a look here. Uh, the data says that since 2004, Swedish prisoner numbers have fallen from 5,722 to 4,500 out of a population of 9.5 million. 9.5 million people, and and they have 450, uh, I mean, 4,500 prisoners. So let's, 4,500 divided by 9,500,000. That is that is such a small fraction that's less than a like a that's a that's less than a hundredth that's less than a hundredth of a percent that's nine one thousandths of a percent of their population is sitting in prison so in a you know in a country which is like crazy about the prisons and we love our prisons and we you know love to have crimes this is crazy this is amazing it is so low in contrast apparently in england they have a population of eighty five thousand out of 57 million in prison which is still fractional compared to what the United States has. But the let's let's 
take a look. Okay, they have low prisoners. Maybe the police just aren't doing their job. Maybe the prisons are crappy. Maybe they let people out early. They have a reoffending rate of about 40%, which is less than almost any other country in Europe. So how do they achieve this? How do they achieve this amazingly low rate and these amazingly low prisoner numbers? Uh, basically, evidently, um, the idea is that they're going to... What? Oh, the idea is that they're going to kind of have this whole restorative justice mindset, right? They're, gonna, they're not going to throw people in prison to punish them. They're going to throw people in prison to go give them a degree while they're in prison. Uh, Sweden does a similar thing with homeless people. They don't like go tell homeless people go away. They go take the homeless person to a shelter. They go and you know try and get them some stuff, uh, get them some nice stuff to get off their feet and, and get some food and get some clothing or whatever. Um, and Switzerland, Switzerland is another great example. Uh, and the Netherlands is having another great example. They, they go, you know, these prisons are closing. They're closing their prisons. Um, but Sweden is the most interesting one because they're the ones who've committed to restorative justice. I mean, I'm looking at this cell, this picture of a cell in Kumla prison in Sweden. It's their most secure institution and it looks like my dorm room, which is not an insult to the University of California, San Diego. Your dorms are wonderful. But their prison looks like my dorm room. Can you believe it? They have more. This person has a single. I don't have a single. I share my room with two other people. And I'm paying $13,000 a year for my room. This guy committed a crime. And this is their like maximum security prison. He has a like a washing basin. He has a sink. He has a bed. He has a television. He has a desk. He has a window. He has a freaking window. He has a bookshelf. He has a chair. He has carpet. Uh, this is incredible. So... Okay, in 2005, Saddam Hussein requested to be transferred to a Swedish uh, prison. Uh, obviously, they they didn't allow that, but the head of Sweden's, this, this guy, Niels Ulberg, is basically saying that we're closing prisons because our crime rate is so low. So between 2011-2012, there was a 6% drop in Sweden's prison prisoner population. So now, it, like we said, it's 4,500. Um, and... Basically, there, there were some escape scandals that Sweden had experienced, but in general, by and large, um, you know, Sweden has a very effective, uh, a very effective justice system. So, uh, according to this this report, one of the strong, one of the major reasons for the drop in prisoner numbers is the amount of post prison support. Uh, so, you know, the probation service is very good. Um, they're tasked not only with supervising people on probation, probation, but also guaranteeing to provide treatment programs for offenders with drug, alcohol, violence issues. I mean, we have so many people who are sitting in some like dirt hole somewhere because they they smoked marijuana or they were carrying like a tab on them of acid or whatever. And these people are like, okay, you committed your crime. We put you in a dorm room, and now our parole officers are not only going to keep track of you. We're going to help you get treatment when you're out and you can get acid again. Can you believe that? Can you believe how amazing that is? So they just have like these, apparently they have 4,500 lay supervisors, just some random member of the public who is really nice and volunteered to befriend and support an offender. 
I, I mean, I don't know. Say what you will about oh, Scandinavian countries. Oh, they're they're homogenous ethnically or whatever, and that helps them out. I, I don't really care. I think this there's there's like a, a people go for mentorship programs and stuff like that for kids. I don't see this as any different. It's probably it's not expensive because people are just volunteering, right? They're volunteering to make a friend. Um. So. The. I mean, do you what? This is this goal of the Justice Department is so much different here. They have a Justice Department that's actually about reforming people, which I think is pretty awesome. Uh, in contrast, in contrast, let's take a look at the American prison system. So, how many people died in prison in 2018? Let's see if there are our numbers. So, uh, according to a report in 2017, this report says nothing. According to a, oh, uh, let's see, let's see. Oh, that's Nevada. Prisoner deaths. Oh, wow, there's a lot of, I, I guess this is some just Wikipedia page about prisoner deaths. Uh, that's very sad. Okay, August 28th, 2018, 12 Mississippi inmates die in custody. In August, 71 people die in Utah jails in the past five years. Seven inmates brutally killed with knives in South Carolina prison unrest. Whitey burglar may have been killed. I, I, who's the, oh, I guess Whitey, Whitey Bulger, Bulger, Bulger. Who's this guy? Oh, I recognize this guy's face. Uh, oh, wow, wow, wow. Okay, this guy, this guy is a freaking informant. All right, in 2018, in some New York prison, I guess, or someplace. U.S. Pen Penitentiary Hazleton in, uh, in West Virginia. All right, This guy who turned on mobsters and now is in prison because he was apparently involved in the mob activities. The cell doors are unlocked so he could go to breakfast. And at 8 a.m. when the staff made the rounds, he had still not emerged for breakfast. They found him wrapped in blankets and unresponsive, blood splattered on the floor. He's dead. This guy is like, he was just shivved or something with a knife. And he's an informant. I mean... So I just read, like, I literally just searched how many people died in prison in 2018. And I, 16 prisoners died in one month in Mississippi. I, I didn't say that yet. Huh, that, wait, 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 wait. 12 prisoners died in Mississippi in August. 16 prisoners died in Mississippi in September. This is incredible. This is incredible. What kind of crap is this? Then you have Sweden, where they are literally closing prisons because they don't have enough people. And the, like members of the public are just making friends with prisoners and taking them to counseling, taking them to drug counseling. I, that is a justice system. That is a system. A justice system is not when we just like throw people in some metal cage somewhere and decide that they're going to get better. So why why do we even call it a justice system? Is this some kind of illusory term where we think that we're doing some great work by putting people in prison? Um, we're not. It's very obvious we are not. So let's look at this Atlantic article. The Atlantic wrote an article in 2013 say, asking the question, why are Scandinavian prisons superior? Um, and apparently there's this concept called open prisons, which in which detainees are allowed to live like anyone else, like regular citizens. I'm looking at this prison. It has a picket fence and a car in it and like buildings that just look like military barracks. Which, I mean, it's a prison. I can't expect wonderful architecture. So, like, what on 
God's green earth is going on here. So apparently this prison, 75, 95 male prisoners leave the prison grounds every day to do the township's general maintenance or commute to the mainland for work or study. Serving time for theft, drug trafficking, assault, or murder. All of the men here are on the verge of release. Can you believe it? They are like, oh my god. They are going and getting an education in the neighboring town. Officers carry no batons, handcuffs, tasers, or pepper spray. Probably because it makes them seem like friends. Because they should be friends. Because they want to get you out. Like, prisoners cost the government money. Prisoners don't pay taxes. Prisoners don't vote. Prisoners are a liability because you need to pay for their care. You need to pay for their medical care. If they get cancer or something, you need to pay for treatment. You need to pay to execute them. You need to pay to house them for security, for transport, for maintenance of the, of the prison itself. Uh, prison guards, I, you need to pay for everything. So why would you want more prisoners? Why wouldn't you want them to actually not go back to prison? Why wouldn't you want to give them an education? Why wouldn't you want to enable them to become actual productive members of society? I mean, how many people with master's degrees are committing murder? Uh, actually, you know what? Let's ask Google. How many people with master's degrees commit murder? Apparently, inmates are earning their master's degrees, so that's wonderful. Educated serial killers. So it seems that serial killers, which are like one in every like 10,000 people or something. Actually, that's a lot. Uh, probably much less. So like the Unabomber got a PhD in mathematics. Um, oh, oh, Leopold and Loeb, for example, they were students at the University of Chicago and were very intelligent. Um, but most prisoners who don't have like a master's degree. Most prisoners don't have a PhD. Most prisoners probably don't even have a, like a bachelor's degree from a good institution. They're probably people who, who had no other option or like in, then stole something or committed a crime like murder or they're mentally ill or they got arrested for something stupid like having an ounce of pot on them. So, I mean, don't you think I don't know. I, I don't know if who out there is listening and if you obviously can't call in, but just a question for you to consider. Don't you think that a system where people are enabled to do something more productive than commit crimes is better than a system that just keeps them in jail and literally strips every other option away from them? You hear on the news all the time these days, there'll be some like invariably African-American prisoner who was in prison for 28 years on murder or like triple rape charges or something like that and then new dna evidence will come to light and they're innocent and like the physical evidence is there that they were absolutely innocent and 28 years ago they were also innocent but no one believed them probably because they were african-american and and even if they weren't african-american no one believed them because now they're in prison for 28 years now what are they going to do the state gives them two million dollars best case scenario like $7 million, I don't know. Some states, they have laws for every year wrongly served, you know, we give you $500,000 or something. So, okay, they get a few million dollars. What are they going to do with it? They have no financial skills. Their family is probably like dead because they've been in prison for 28 years. They have no friends. They have no community. They have no house. They have no job. They have nothing. And good luck getting a job because guess what? You have a felony conviction on your record. It doesn't matter that you've been proving in proven innocent. When you go to the job application and they ask you, have you ever been convicted of a crime? 
The correct answer under the law is yes, you have been convicted of a crime. There's no box to check were you proven innocent. And in fact, no one gives a crap whether you were proven innocent because now you have the stain on your record forever and ever and ever. So what are they supposed to do? Like, don't you expect people to, I'm not saying that they do turn back to crime. I think someone who's been in prison for 28 years and is innocent won't turn back to crime. But I think that someone who's in prison for like four years or something, and now four years of their life is gone and they can only get some really bad minimum wage job someplace at some menial place that doesn't mind hiring a convicted person, then they're probably going to turn to crime again. I think it's only natural. I, and at that point, you know, I cannot even blame them because what other opportunity do they have to better? Uh, it's not even bettering themselves, but what other opportunity, what other recourse do they have? What else is society going to give them? Because society is prepared to give prisoners nothing and society is prepared to give convicts nothing. So, you know, when, when you look at Sweden, a system that's like, let's go, let our prisoners get bachelor's degrees and, you know, are, are freaking murderers. Let's let them have TV, enjoy their life. Obviously, they're electronically monitored. They're allowed to spend time with their families, which is nice. The men apparently in the prison, they enjoy a barbecue pit, a gym, dining hall, where prisoners and staff eat together. Oh, wow. What a concept. Integrate the prisoners and staff so they don't feel like they're on opposite sides of stuff. Call them staff, not security guards. Don't give them pepper spray and tasers. Obviously, the Stanford prison experiment is extremely widely discredited because it seems that some of the, the guards or some of the prisoners, you know, they were kind of aware of this. But I think it's only, you know, you give, in, you give someone a taser, they're probably going to tase someone. You know, look at the, um, the um, Milgram experiment where, like, you have some guy, some doctor telling you, turn up the voltage, turn up the voltage. And the guy keeps, and some person with a knob keeps on turning up the voltage until it goes to the skull and crossbones. There's someone on the other side screaming. They're faking their electric shock, but the do, like the, the person turning the dial doesn't know this. And they just keep on going up because they're so susceptible to listen to authority in some particular situation, right? There's another thing that I once watched that was this, um, I, I don't know, some British television channel. Uh, there is this program called Push to the Edge. Uh, oh, you know what? It's on Netflix. Darren Brown, Push to the Edge. All right. He investigates the power of compliance by persuading some random ass member of the public into believing that they had pushed someone to their death. He uses some situational tricks and some, you know, stuff to convince people to go murder someone. Three out of four people actually push the guy off the building. <coughs> so you, you give some rando tasers, you know, some guy with minimal training. What are they going to do? You give them pepper spray or a gun or a baton. They're probably going to beat the crap out of some prisoner who has been convicted of like molesting a kid. You give them some kind of power to, to administer their own brand of quote unquote justice. They're going to do it. So that you look at a system where you integrate the prisoners, you integrate the staff, you, you let the prisoners out to go get an education, do something productive with their time. You give them some nice accommodations and you still only have a recidivism rate of uh, like 40. Uh, apparently there's only a, like a reoffending rate of 40%, which is quite low. That's, that's incredible. And even if it's 40%, it's 40% of, 4,500 people in your prison. It's 40% of nine one thousandths of a percent. So that's a great number. That is a really incredible number. And the prison population is probably only going to decrease. So 
I mean, th- this is this is my this is my opinion. This is my opinion about prisoners. Maybe some people just don't like prisoners. They have a hard line, pro justice, uh, strong on crime, whatever thing. Okay, fine, that's your view. So let's talk about the people that you do care about, which are the police officers. Officers, American corrections officers, prison guards, have an average life expectancy of 59 because they suffer from stress, hypertension, alcoholism, suicide. They have an average life expectancy of 59, and that is according to the National Criminal Justice Reference Service. And the National Criminal Justice Reference Service is, if I'm not mistaken, an actual arm of the United States Department of Justice. So you can't say this data is bad because it's actually produced by the Department of Justice. They wouldn't lie and say that the average life expectancy of officers is 59 when it's actually 64. In fact, if anything, you would say that their bias is to say that it's 59 when it's actually 52. But an average life expectancy of 59 is really terrible. And these are police officers. So even if you take some hardline stance against justice, why would you want why would you want the police officers to like go and like die? Because they commit suicide or, or, you know, they get, they become alcoholics and now they can't work in the prison because they've just seen terrible, terrible things. Uh, can you imagine what it was like to be the officer that found that mob informant? You just shake him and then suddenly blood splatters everywhere because he was shivved in the chest. I mean, can you imagine what that does on someone's psyche to see like prisoners get beaten and raped in prison every single day? Or like when, when 16 members of your prison are dying every month because you work in Mississippi? Or when prisoners are dying of, of, uh, of dehydration because apparently the United States government can't afford to give water to people. This is uh, quite, quite pathetic. Quite pathetic. So even if you take a, a hardline stance against, against you know, criminals, at least have the, have the kind of the mindset and, the, and the, the consistency, the logic consistency, to say that the, the justice system is treating these security guards just as bad as they're treating their prisoners. And even if you think the prisoners deserve what they're getting, it's still quite bad. And I don't think any sane person can say that prisoners deserve what they're getting. So, I, you know, we've ad-libbed for 46 minutes now, minus four minutes, because I had to play that weird song from Anchor Song. But I think I've made my point, and I'm just going to talk circles around myself if I continue. So I'm just going to leave you with, with this fundamental question about the justice system, as it is in America. Do we even have a justice system? Is the system we have one predicated on justice? Is it one predicated on limiting crimes being committed again by felons? Is it one that we can look at and say, we have done a good job, we have done an honest job by putting people in prison for 28 years for committing murder? Is that what we should be doing? And if you can honestly answer yes, then fine. You know, you're, you're logically consistent. You can use the term justice system because that's apparently how you define justice. But if you say no, if you say no, this is not how we should define justice. If you say no, because this is not a justice system, this is a punitive system. This is a system where, you know, we get off on punishing people who committed crimes and violate the social contract. Then consider what should we do about it? Should we move to a system like Sweden's? Should we move to another system that maybe treats prisoners like human beings, perhaps? A system that not only protects people prisoners who are still citizens of this country, but also protect the people working in prisons from stuff like alcoholism and suicide, something that we fail to do. Should we have a system where we give security guards with minimal training, corrections officers power 
such power like tasers, batons? Should they be carrying these things around to threaten, implicitly threaten prisoners? If you are in a metal box and this guy is patrolling outside your room with a baton, pepper spray, and a taser, you're going to see him as a threat because he is a threat. You could like poke him and he'll just beat the crap out of you. So maybe they shouldn't have that. Maybe, you know, give them an armory where they have tasers and pepper spray and whatever. If there's like a prisoner riot. But if you have the staff eat with the prisoners, I don't think there's going to be a riot. And, the, you know, the big thing is that it, it, it does come down in some, you know, I'll buy the argument that it's a cultural divide. Maybe the culture in the United States, we see prison different. We see, we see justice different. I mean, California is such a liberal state is one of the most hardline states for the death penalty, which is, I find quite ironic, but you know, maybe that's just a cultural problem. And if so, is this something worth fixing? Is this what we have to do as a society? Is it, we have to change to something like Sweden to really have a justice system? These are just questions to consider because I think every time we say justice system, I kind of flinch because I don't believe that's what this is. I think we're a punitive system. And I think personally, a lot of what we've done is wrong. And do you want to ask for a solution? One word for you, Sweden. Thank you for listening to the Isle on KSDT, San Diego's, UC San Diego's fiercely independent radio station. We're going to go to some new ad that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>